Welcome to the Art of Teaching podcast. I'm Matthew Green and I'm so grateful that you joined me today. Today I have a real treat for you all. For the first time on the podcast, I'll be chatting to two, yes, two amazing educators and thinkers in one go. Yes, shock horror, I always knew that I could multitask. In this episode, I'm going to be having a conversation with Simon Breakspear and Bronwyn Ryrie-Jones, the authors of the book Teaching Sprints, How Overworked Educators Can Keep Getting Better. I've had the privilege of meeting Simon a few times and also working with him both virtually and in person, and I've been fascinated with his work for a while. This is the first time that I've chatted to Bronwyn, despite being slightly obsessed, I must admit, with her research on how to build bridges between complex theory and everyday practice in the classroom. Each of these educators are brilliant in their own light, and to have them together speaking about their fascinating work in which they're currently involved is really special. I hope that you enjoy this discussion today. Welcome to the uh, podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time. Bronwyn, where are you phoning from? Thanks, Matt. It's great to be here. Uh, I'm coming in from Melbourne today. Lovely, lovely. Melbourne is a beautiful part of the world. I had the privilege of doing my master's down at the University of Melbourne, so I, I, I do miss it uh, incredibly. So uh, nice and cold down there? Oh, it's not too bad today. Quite nice and mild. So, yeah. Amazing. Good day. Simon, where are you phoning from? And Matt, coming in from home in uh, beautiful Sydney, Australia, um, just a little bit better than Melbourne, and yeah, having a good day so far. Amazing, amazing. Well, uh, just to get started, um, I wanted to ask a couple of rapid fire questions. Uh, Bronwyn, what can you currently see outside of your window? Uh, not much. It's a scene out the window that I got very familiar with in a very long lockdown in Melbourne. So I'm sitting in my home office. I can just see a little slice of suburbia. I'm sort of 14 k's north of the CBD. Uh, And in through lockdown, I watched a couple of houses being built. So just a nice street view out my window. Fantastic. Uh, Simon, what about yourself? Well, out my office window, strangely, I can see the edge of Randwick Racecourse. uh, And so horses walk walk by my window here every now and again when the trainers are taking them around the back. So there you go. Fantastic, fantastic. I uh, I can see a uh, we've got a childcare at the back of our place, so it's uh, full of uh, children running around making noises. So if there's any background noise, apologies for that. Um, Simon, what is your coffee order for when I can finally shout you a coffee? Uh, mate, normally I'm on a long black these days. On a hot day, I might put some ice in there for an ice long black. If you're feeling particularly adventurous, put a bit of ice in your coffee. That's it. Fantastic. Afternoon, I might have a macchiato. That's it. So remember, write it down. And I will. Time I'll, I'll put that in my Excel okay. spreadsheet. And, and Bronwyn, I know the uh, the coffee culture down in Melbourne is uh, maybe argued far superior to Sydney. Um, I don't know if I agree with that, but what is your coffee of choice? It is far superior. I can. Uh, you're absolutely correct. Uh, I'm a soy latte. Okay. Fantastic. Uh, because you can't order just a plain coffee if you live in Melbourne. It has to be a little bit fancy. So I go with soy. Fantastic. One of my favourite coffee shops in Melbourne is Seven Seeds, which is just down the uh, the road from the University of Melbourne. I spent way too much money and time in there, so uh, they definitely Yeah, do. me too. That's my local. Just 
couple of strolls from MGSE where I work at Melbourne Uni, so love Seven Seats. Fantastic. Uh, Simon, what is a, uh, a book that has influenced your thinking? doesn't need to be an educational book. It could just be a book that you've read, but something that has had a big, imp big impact on your life. Yeah, well, I'm not sure. Uh, I would say one that's related to what we're going to be talking about today is a book by James Clear called Atomic Habits. Uh, it's his sort of analysis of how hard it is to break habits, but also yeah. that most improvement in life is about making small changes that add up over time. Uh, and we were working along uh, some of the stuff we'll probably talk about later on. We were working on our teaching sprints approach at about the same time when that book came out. And so it was really influential in thinking about uh, habit change more broadly. And then I was starting to think about how that applies to habit change in the classroom. Amazing. Uh, what about yourself, Ron? What's a book that's uh, had an impact in your life? Uh, recently, uh, which also sort of uh, relates to, I guess, what we'll talk a bit about later, uh, I've got really interested in Responsive Teaching uh, by Harry Fletcher Wood, one of the uh, great thinkers and writers out of the UK at the moment, and he's in very good company. Uh, and that's a really neat little book. Uh, I think a kind of nice, neat extension on a lot of Dylan Williams' work in Embedded Formative Assessment. Uh, and so we've been thinking about um, how you can use the teaching experience process to get going with some sort of incremental changes in the classroom. And I think responsive uh, teaching by Harry Fletcher Wood is a really neat kind of match um, for that. So yeah, I've been reading that. It's a great book, highly recommend. Fantastic. I'll definitely add that to my reading list and add it to the show notes. One of the books that has had a huge influence in my life, this is a wonderful segue, is your book, Teaching Sprints. So uh, today I thought <laughs> uh, Simon's wrapped about that one. Uh, today, uh, I, 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 I'm so grateful that you both uh, take the time. Um, you do seem both incredibly busy. Um, and my goal with our discussion today is to introduce uh, some of your incredible work to uh, the Art of Teaching podcast audience. Um, so really grateful that you would spend the time. Um, but starting with you, um, Simon, what? How do you explain what you actually uh, do? What do you? Um, what do you? What does your day to day look like in terms of education? Yeah, thanks, Matt. So I'm a former high school science teacher, uh, and I come to all of this work from both perspectives of thinking about teaching, but also with an undergraduate in psychology. So I'm really interested in learning human development and the role that teaching and schools plays in changing learning and life trajectories of young people. Uh, at the moment, I spend some time in research, but most of my time you will find me uh, working shoulder to shoulder with school leadership teams, uh, thinking about how they can make the most out of the available evidence base and utilize processes of uh, improvement and implementation science to try to get that good evidence moving in their schools. So most of the time I'm working as a partner, as a capacity builder to schools here in Australia and beyond. Incredible. And you, uh, you also um, did your PhD uh, over in, is it Oxford? Uh, yeah, I spent about five years in the UK, uh, mostly just to enjoy uh, spending some time in some pubs and getting to know some different people. But um, I did my master's in international and comparative education at Oxford. I was really interested in how different school systems, um, 
their historical trajectories and how they've been structured the way they have. And then uh, I popped over to Cambridge to do my PhD and I focused on OECD international benchmarking and the role that PISA and their assessment of 15 year olds was starting to play in how school systems were thinking about quality and how they were starting to reformulate their policies in that international context. So really enjoyed my time in the UK. My wife's a primary school teacher, so she was also in schools there and it was giving me a sense of uh, the similarities and differences across those countries. And uh, been back in Australia for about five, seven years or so since since that time and um, been really much more in that applied place now. Fantastic. Um, Bronwyn, uh, how would you describe uh, what you do? I mean, you talked a little bit before in the introduction about the importance of uh, responsive teaching. Um, how do you explain uh, what you do? Yeah, so when people ask me what I do, my first response is a teacher. So I've taught for the last 12 years or so uh, first at a little primary school, uh, just 10Ks north of uh, the city here in Melbourne. Uh, so I started my career as a music teacher, uh, did classroom uh, sort of prep or foundation through to grade six, uh, music teaching. Uh, and then I got really interested in assessment. So I went and did my master's at the University of Melbourne uh, and then subsequently uh, got really interested in working with pre-service teachers. So basically for my whole career, I've had one foot in the world of uh, teaching or working in uh, primary schools and then have one foot in the teacher education world. So I work at the University of Melbourne and I um, lecture into their master's programs, uh, which is really wonderful. Fantastic. Do you, uh, do you miss the daily interaction uh, with students in the classroom or are you uh, happy to have your feet in both camps? Uh, yeah, well, I'm really lucky. I work one day a week now at Docklands Primary School, which is a brand new school in the city in Melbourne. Uh, so I was really missing the interaction with kids until I got back into a school in a more kind of formal capacity this year. Uh, I only teach one hour of preps a week. The rest of the time I do instructional coaching. Uh, but I do get my one hour in a week and I usually need to lie down for about two days after I've had one hour of teaching. Um, you do easily, I think, forget uh, the human cognitive, emotional demands of teaching. So um, even for that one hour, I feel very privileged to have that uh, time in the classroom with real small people. Simon, what about yourself? Do you, uh, do you miss the time in class or are you happy that that is a uh, different season uh, in your life? Oh, of course. Uh, I mean, I think everyone gets an education to impact you know, lives and be embedded in communities. Um, so uh, I'm fortunate that in a range of partner schools, I get to be in their hand, you know, um, shoulder to shoulder and be in classrooms, but very different being in classrooms to having your own classroom. Uh, but I guess all of us in education at different points will make decisions about uh, where's the best place for us to have an impact. And sometimes that impact's going to be uh, full-time in the classroom. Sometimes it might be a hybrid. Sometimes it might be uh, outside of a school community. Uh, and there's always trade-offs there, I think. I've got more time to think, uh, to conceptualise things, to build tools for people who are doing that work at the moment. Uh, but, of course, I do miss that kind of human interaction and the positive kind of motivation and feedback loop of getting in the car at the end of the day and feeling like you've actually intersected with people's lives on the ground. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm currently in class uh, five days a week, uh, which is 
wonderfully complex, um, but it's uh, I, I know that the support that we have from uh, academics and universities and, and, and trainers and, and coaches like yourselves is, is so vitally important to have people that are both within the classroom and the profession and also people that are looking outside. So uh, thank you for all the work that both uh, you are doing to help support us, whether it would be in Melbourne or whether it be in New South Wales. Um, I did just want to move to uh, your book that we briefly mentioned, Teaching Sprints. I just wanted to uh, just wanted to read a a quick uh, review by Professor John Hattie. Uh, if you're going to get a review from somebody, that's a pretty good one. Um, so, and then I thought it might frame some of our discussion uh, today. It says, uh, among the greatest unsolved, unresolved issues within schools is developing great models for implementation. Teaching Sprints is certainly one of the breakthroughs. This book can make major improvements, can make major improvements attainable in schools and classrooms ironically by focusing on tiny shifts. And we're going to look at some of those tiny shifts later. Um, but Bronwyn, if you were to uh, explain what the essence of teaching sprints is um, in the book that you've just written, how would you do that and what are some of its essential elements? And then Simon, we're going to come back to you in a moment just to get your thoughts on that as well. Yeah, so teaching sprints essentially is uh, a simple and very importantly an adaptable uh, process for getting better in the classroom. So uh, all teachers are charged with the responsibility of continually improving, uh, but we know for a range of reasons uh, and, you know, kind of workload and demands of the job would be one of them. Uh, you know, Matt, better than anyone, you're, you're working five days a week in the classroom. So um, we're all charged with the responsibility of getting better. Uh, you know, we enter the classroom fresh out of university and we all, and we talk about this in the book that we all kind of can look back in horror sometimes at all that we didn't know when, you know, you teach your first week or month uh, in the classroom. So we're all kind of charged with this professional responsibility of improving uh, and schools uh, set out particular goals, uh, usually around student outcomes, but, uh, you know, we kind of believe and there's a good amount of research to suggest that improving teacher practice is a pretty good lever for improving student outcomes. So. Uh, in a sentence, teaching sprints is a, a you know uh, supposed to be a really user-friendly, teacher-friendly, simple and adaptable process for getting better uh, at what teachers do best. So getting better at our classroom practice uh, over time uh, and giving teachers as well uh, the chance to engage in practice improvement in meaningful and conscious ways uh, in every school term. Fantastic. And from personal experience using Teaching Sprints, I can say that it does exactly that. Um, it's so wonderful to... Oh, thank heavens. That's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it, uh, thank you for not making my job even more complicated than it already is. Um, but just those incremental changes, I mean, we talked briefly before about um, atomic habits and making those small changes to practice, which are really important. And through using the, the teaching sprints process, it's been so wonderful just to be able to really focus on some of these explicit components of teaching and learning and then make those improvements. Um, Simon, what are your, um, you talk a lot about developing evidence-informed practice and teaching sprints. Um, why is that so important? What does that form the basis um, of what you're talking about in the book? Yeah, thank you, Matt. And, you know, one of the things that Bronwyn's 
sort of referenced already is this idea that as we begin in our teaching craft, we'll have this interesting amalgam of uh, maybe practices that we picked up because we had things modeled when we were in the classroom. You know, we had 10,000 hours of experience in the classroom before we ever started to train to be a teacher. We've had all that modeling and imprinting. Uh, there were certain things that we uh, were taught at university and there's certain things that we sort of worked out in our first few years in the classroom. And one of the, the provocations we put in the book is we ask, you know, what's the likelihood that this sort of cluster of different approaches are the optimal structure, uh, you know, the optimal approaches to causing learning in your classroom? And, you know, one of the things as you start to consider, well, where might we turn to keep getting better at what we do? Well, one of the places to turn is the evidence, which says, uh, rather than just base this on your limited life experience and your own experience in the classroom, which of course has some validity and importance, um, there's a broader set of experiences um, that we can draw on that are captured in the research evidence base. And what the research evidence suggests is what's worked in the past in the majority of other places. And that's a really good place to be thinking about finding areas that would be worth improving in our own craft. So when we think about evidence-informed practice, we're talking about thinking about aligning what we do in the classroom with what the research suggests is, has a higher likelihood of having an impact on our students. And at some point that might mean adding some additional strategies to what you're doing. At other points, and something that Bron's always um, you know, keen to emphasize, that sometimes moving towards evidence-informed practice will uh, equally mean stopping doing something or substituting something you're doing now for something that's an even uh, more effective practice. So when we're thinking about improving, uh, we're not just talking about doing something different. We want to do something that's different and likely to going to result in better outcomes for our kids and evidence-informed practices for us are the place that we think we should be looking at for making decisions about what's worth working on for practice improvement. Fantastic. Um, Bronwyn, how, uh, how important do you think it is as educators to challenge uh, their assumptions um, and really look at what the evidence is telling us when we're considering improving and refining practice? Yeah, I think it's really important to always challenge uh, what we think. I actually think that's where, for me, teaching is really exciting, right? Like it's um, when you challenge yourself to think, what are we currently doing today? What did I do yesterday? What's the likelihood that that's going to have the best payoff for my students? Um, that's where teaching gets really exciting, where we throw up all the possible different techniques, approaches, strategies, models, and say, well, what's going to work best in our context based on what we know? As Simon said, we've got so much... Uh, you know, uh, research, so many uh, good people doing a lot of good stuff, uh, often with larger sample sizes under more controlled conditions. Um, so we've got all these people uh, kind of feverishly pulling together all of this really rich um, evidence. And so one of the most important and I think um, enjoyable things about teaching is thinking exactly what Simon said, like what's the likelihood that what we're doing uh, is the best it can be and we think and I think from being a classroom teacher for a long time that the odds will always be low um, and that's why you know our job as teachers is never done we can always improve and that's I think one of the addictive things about being in the classroom is you never leave the classroom thinking you know there wasn't a single thing I could do better um, no school leader has ever thought that they're doing everything that they can to serve their community so 
um, yeah, I think it's important to challenge our assumptions and our practices, but also it can be really exciting uh, and rewarding to kind of come off autopilot, yeah. think deeply about what we're doing and then improve. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that uh, in the introduction to your book, it says, uh, what is something you do in the classroom now? Sorry, what is something that you can do in the classroom now more effectively than what you did six months ago? Yeah. So the idea that we are constantly, we should be constantly refining and constantly challenging our assumptions with teaching and the idea that we um, we expect our students to learn and we expect our students to um, have flexible mindsets and be resilient and change. And But as educators, we also need to be modelling that as well. And I think it's really important to be able to... Um, uh, to be able to constantly reflect and review and refine our practice, I think is really, really important. Um, I also love what says, just, just on that, Matt, one of the things that I think we were grappling with is this tension between this desire and, and maybe a bit of a, a push as well, saying, hey, if you're in the classroom, we want to be keeping on getting better and we want to do that based on evidence. And that's going to have an impact on kids and it's going to give you the joy of mastery. But then the flip side of that is people are saying, I'm overloaded, I'm overwhelmed, and I barely have enough time to get through my current to-do yeah. list. And I think it's in that tension that Bronwyn and I were trying to sort of explore a creative tension there about, well, how do we do both? How do we continue to get better, model that learning and avoid what we call that premature plateau of expertise, but also acknowledge that incredible busyness that you yourself are experiencing during school term. Yeah. And I think that's at the heart of what a teaching sprint is. It's trying to say, get better, but get better in small manageable chunks that can add up over time to serious changes in your expertise. Yeah, and one of the things that we'll talk about a little bit later when we actually go through the, the teaching sprint focus is the importance of that really um, focused sprint. And I know one of the things that has been particularly beneficial for me in the classroom is knowing that this is the one tiny thing that will have impact that I'm going to be focusing on for this particular cycle. And that has yeah, been nice. really amazing. And I think it would be really great a little later on maybe to talk about some of the ways that you know that you're successful or not when it comes to gathering that evidence. Um, but um, Simon, uh, what are some of the big ideas about practice and improvement that underpin, sorry, underpin the teaching sprints focus? What, what were you yeah. with implementing this particular methodology? Well, look, when Bron and I were trying to get our head around the literature on teacher expertise, professional learning, and what seems to work, um, there are often very long lists of six or seven things and various elements that needed to be there. And we were trying to get right to the core of what are the things that educators and leaders who are designing professional learning need to have right at the, the forefront of their mind. And we ended up distilling it down to three, uh, multiple months of wrestling uh, mentally about this. And the three are simply these. First, uh, given that limited time and bandwidth, uh, focus your practice improvement on the best bets from the evidence base. And I think we've already had a conversation about why we think of all the places to focus, if you've got limited time, limited energy, well, why wouldn't you go to what seems to be both uh, practical and proven things that are likely to uh, pay off for your kids um, for the effort you put in? And then the second big idea is all about that um, we make progress through practicing. And when running workshops, Bron and I often ask, uh, what are the mental images that come to mind when you think about professional learning? People say things like, oh, things like this, being in a room, listening to kind of researchy people like you, or being uh, at a table with some data and talking to my colleagues, or being at a conference. We say, how often do you ever think about 
professional learning being you in your classroom trying something out. So well, isn't that just teaching? And there is this sense that when we looked at the literature on expertise development, that the notion that um, deliberate practice or intentional practice was a core driver for building further mastery in any area of human endeavor. And so the second idea was all about actually practicing the doing, the trying out. And then the third big idea uh, is this idea of tiny shifts. Uh, and it's all about believing in the, the beauty and the magic of cumulative gains, that so many educators are so committed to improvement that they commit to large things that then they never get around to doing. And they get themselves in this accidental loop where their moral imperative to improve leads to big aspirations. And then they're so burnt out, they end up doing no improvement. And what we've learned is you're better off thinking about small steps of improvement that you can sustain and embed into your repertoire. And even if you just made one of those changes a term, in one year, you'd have four really high quality evidence informed strategies built into your repertoire. And in three years, you'd have 12. Well, actually, you could be a dramatically better teacher if you went about that work of tiny shifts and were kinder to yourself about doing less over the short term, but doing it sustainably so it adds up over the longer term. So they were the kind of three big ideas. And we often say to people, look, even if you don't like the teaching sprints process or you're not really up for sort of doing the process, those three ideas would really serve you well, uh, both in designing professional learning, but also reflecting on what's currently happening within your team or school. Yeah, fantastic. Um, Brahman, I just wondered uh, if you could spend a few moments um, unpacking a quote uh, from your book. Uh, and it's in regards to making this process accessible and usable for teachers. It says if it doesn't work for the teachers, then it just doesn't work. How important was it and for you when considering this particular model to make it in a way that is uh, responsive to each individual classroom's uh, um, context? And also how important was it to make it usable and user-friendly for educators? Yeah, I think um, that's probably the number one thing, you know, even though, uh, you know, we were deep into the literature, uh, we were doing a lot of deep thinking about teacher learning, we were doing a lot of reading, but at the end of the day, I think when we were in the process of co-writing the book, the thing we kept coming back to is, is that how teachers think? Are they words teachers would use? I used to say to Simon, does this pass the staff room test? Like if our book's sitting on the staff room table and a teacher picks it up and opens it, can they access it? Can they read it? Does it, does it speak teacher? Um, does it sound practical? Um, is it a good fit for the profession? Uh, is this workable? Uh, is this, I think we say in the book, you know, is this theoretical enough to be challenging and exciting uh, and practical enough to be useful. Um, and, you know, I really think that teaching sprint sits at the intersection of those two things. Um, and that's probably what uh, I'm personally proudest of is that um, I think teaching sprint sits um, not necessarily out on its own, but as someone who has been as part of big staff, um, you know, I've been in the staff room where we've had the next model presented to us. You know, this is the model that we're going to use for our collaborative professional learning. And I'm glazing over, like it's four o'clock in the afternoon and there are 12 steps to the process. And, you know, we have a very limited time to make it work. Um, and there's, uh, you know, a lot to wrap your head around in a big, complex inquiry process. Uh, and I think 
in being uh, really centred on the teacher, what could work for the teacher, we've landed a, a three-phase process that I think holds up in terms of its usability. So to answer your question, uh, it's very important that it works for teachers because, uh, as we say in the book, if it doesn't work for teachers, it just doesn't work. Well, I, I, I can definitely um, attest to that. It's um, I have a one-page printout, exactly what we're looking for, this particular uh, sprint cycle, stuck on my classroom wall. Um, it's something which I can use in my class every day. Um, I know the evidence that we're looking for. I know if I've been successful. And it's it's really, really usable. And we've all sat in professional learning meetings and just gone, how on earth am I going to use this back in my classroom? Because I'm tired. I've got reports to do. Um, a student in my class just threw up on the carpet. I've got to sort that out. <laughs> like it's just chaos. And to have something which is which is so simple. Um, Simon, I was just wondering if just for a couple of moments, for those people that are not familiar uh, with the work, uh, would you mind just spending maybe a minute or so just outlining the three teaching sprints processes and why each of those are important. Sorry to throw that on you. Uh, but yeah, no, it's okay. I, I would say just as well, building on what Bron's just unpacked, I mean, we didn't write this book and then thought we'd put it out to the world and see how it went. We've been with teachers trying out these approaches and making lots of mistakes for four to five years. Um, the name has changed. The process has gone from the five or six step process to a three step process. The, 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 the protocols have been uh, iterated on and iterated on in, in, in partnership with educators. And so all I would say, you know, is if it works for teachers, it's because teachers uh, both, you know, in Bron as a co-author, but then also in our community have been there giving us robust feedback all the way along and helping us to, to co-design something. Yeah. Uh, and we have seen it be used by, you know, literally now thousands of educators and a couple of hundred schools have tried this out. So. Um, we call it, you know, it's been field tested, uh, it's been rigorously field tested, uh, and we've been trying to be agile in the whole approach by iterating and adjusting as we go. So um, the, the three uh, phases, and, and as Bron was saying, this is a very adaptable process, but the three phases uh, prepare, sprint, review. There's three for a reason, because most people can remember the rule of three, and uh, they can think, where am I up to? You know, prepare, sprint, or review. In the prepare phase, we come collectively together to uh, build our understanding of a small piece of that research evidence base, uh, to talk with one another about um, the connections to our own practice and, and potentially the challenges about um, areas of our practice that might need to be let go of or adjusted. And then we decide collectively about one highly specific strategy or technique that we want to try out for about the next one to four weeks. Um, in the sprint phase, this is the practicing phase. So we've built some knowledge and we've decided something to work on, but now we need to adaptively work out how to get what works from the evidence to actually work within our context. And so we give ourselves normally about a month, so we say two to four weeks, where teachers make their own decisions about where there might be opportunities to try out this strategy. Uh, early on, maybe just light trialing of it, and then over time trying to build it into their repertoire of what they're doing in the classroom. And of course, uh, making some mistakes, uh, often finding it hard uh, to potentially shift their, their current routines or ways of working. And we say playfully explore over those two to four weeks ways to make that strategy work within your context. Uh, and then in the review phase, we come back together 
and we want to learn from our experience. Uh, and so using one of our review protocols, we come back together and we reflect on that period of practicing and trying things out, both talking about what changes we made and what it felt like, uh, what impact we noticed uh, and what conclusions we can draw from that, and then how we might want to transfer that uh, new practice that might still, you know, not yet be habituated yet. We may not be all that fluent in it, but still emergent. We think about how we're going to transfer that into our future practice. So they're the three phases of prepare, sprint, review. Fantastic. I, I just love how simple it is, honestly. Like I, I'm a K-2 teacher at heart, um, so my job is to take these things that seem really difficult, like reading and writing and all of that kind of stuff, and to, and to communicate them in ways that are easy for people to, to grasp. And so I think that's one of the things that I really appreciate with, uh, with this book and this process is it's just so easy to move through. And also it's responsive to each individual school context, which I think is so important. So the focus that we have in our particular school would be very different to the focus that you might have Bronwyn in Docklands Public School. Um, but we get to use the same process, which is really important. Uh, one of the quotes that I love uh, out of your book in the conclusion, I think this sums up really well what the uh, Teaching Sprints focus is trying to do, is um, by Gawande, it says, a better is possible, it does not take genius, it takes diligence, it takes moral clarity, and above all, it takes a willingness to try. And I think that's really, really important because our job as educators is so complicated and so complex and there's so many things that can go wrong that to be able to have a model that works as systematically through uh, change and um, through building those skills of self-reflection and collecting evidence is is really really important so thank you so much for um for putting it out into the world um i, I do want to be uh, respectful of your time i know we have a couple of uh minutes to go but just a few uh, closing questions um uh Bronwyn, what do you see uh on the educational horizon in the next 12 months i mean we've obviously uh are coming through and um in, in many cases still working through the complexities of of a global pandemic pandemic um, how do you view the educational landscape over the next 12 months and uh, what, what has your attention at the moment? Yeah, um, so I don't know whether this is me, my little world in my job at Docklands, but the, I'm thinking a lot about uh, insights from cognitive science. I know Simon and I uh, spoke a lot about these when we were writing the book as well. Just the, um, I think there's a kind of renewed focus on this importance of understanding learning to understand teaching. Uh, I think we've got some great thinkers and writers. Uh, Daniel Willingham comes to mind. Uh, these cognitive scientists who are connecting with our field in ways that are so useful. Uh, one of our colleagues and all-round uh, podcaster guru, uh, Ollie Lovell, uh, recently released a book called Cognitive Load Theory in Action. I highly recommend that. Uh, and that as well sort of looks into cognitive load theory, uh, John Sweller's work, and again seeks to get teachers engaging with these in really rich insights from cognitive science, uh, which I see as kind of um, a step back a bit so you know okay we want to focus on our teaching let's step back a bit and look at uh, how we know uh, students learn so I think that's going to be really interesting that's something I'm thinking about and certainly something we're thinking about at Docklands Primary how do we um, equip our teachers with the best knowledge of how students learn in order to fuel our practice improvement work. Fantastic what about yourself Simon what do you see on the horizon for the next 12 months what are some of those big challenges that you think that we will face as educators? 
Yeah, well, uh, I think overall there is this real interest in understanding um, what are the underlying mechanisms we're actually trying to influence. I think LeBron's got to so well there, something that emerged at our recent Teaching Sprint Summit. We had about 400 people globally come together and one of our speakers, Tom Sherrington, was talking about, you know, you want to be clear about the teaching strategy or technique, but it has to connect back to an underlying theory of learning and that's what Bron's getting at there as well. So I think there's a real desire uh, now to understand not just what program or practice we're meant to be utilising, but uh, how is that influencing an underlying mechanism of learning or of change? Um, and if anything, I think there's a real interest right now of pairing back, of playing the, sub, of the subtraction game. I'm trying to say as we come out of the global pandemic and we start to think about what are we really trying to do in our schools, um, trying to be clearer about the few things that we are trying to do and trying to use um, the most effective you know, approaches and programs to do that work. And so I do think there'll be a, a real interest again in thinking about not just crisis management or managing complexity, but thinking about uh, applying evidence to create change that's sustainable over time, but to do that in a fewer number of important areas. And I, I think that's what I'm hoping to see more and more. I think we're doing that in our personal lives coming out of COVID, thinking about what is essential, what really matters. And I think uh, as schools, one of the most important things we all need to grapple with is how do we focus on the essential few things rather than come out by adding more and more things that create overload with that impact. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Simon, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, Bronwyn, do you think that um, there is, um, as a result of what's happened in the last 12 or 18 months or so with COVID, do you think that there is a a new understanding or a new appreciation of the job that teachers do um, with people who are not necessarily in the profession? What have you seen down in Melbourne? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and not just an appreciation of what teachers do, but the school, the, the physical place, the, the school as an anchor for communities. I work with a lot of... Um, so I partner with a lot of schools directly looking at assessment and instruction. A lot of schools I work with are socio and educationally disadvantaged areas. Uh, and the way they talk about lockdown um, puts it in perspective for me. You know, they talk about the fact that uh, they didn't realise that schools were keeping some of these communities from near collapse or they didn't realise that the schools were a safe haven for so many of their students or they didn't realise that the school was the only place where... Mm. Uh, a student had access to food. Um, and that's a really important perspective, I think, to come out of COVID, of the value not just of teachers but um, schools and the resources and everything that comes with schools. So um, that's a big takeaway for me. Fantastic. Um, Simon, what about your, um, uh, as, a, as a parent of relatively young children, what, what has changed in your understanding of what teachers do? Yeah, well, look, uh, I was grateful that in Sydney we had overall a global perspective, uh, such a, a short lockdown. Uh, I think we definitely, you know, I love Bron's comments here about, yes, this book might be about teaching and about the craft of teaching, but we actually really love schooling and schools uh, and schools as institutions. Um, you know, for me, uh, I definitely think you miss that sort of partnership as parent and teacher. Uh, it might just be my six-year-old, but he finds it much easier to um, get instruction and advice and feedback from people who aren't his parents. 
Uh, and so too with my five-year-old daughter. Uh, it doesn't matter whether they're trying to teach football, soccer, piano, or uh, decoding. Uh, it seems as though he, he much prefers having someone else, whether it's his uncle or his wonderful teacher. So yeah. I, I think we've all started to realize just this need to be in partnership as parents and caregivers that, um, you know, the, the learning, but also just the broader human development that we're all longing for for our young people uh, is is truly something we need to do as a village and as a community. And um, different people playing different roles makes the whole thing uh, sing in ways that we didn't experience during lockdown. So yeah. I think there's definitely that piece. And I think for, I'm, I'm hoping as people come back as parents, there, there will be much more of a leaning in towards a partnership approach, not just a uh, an acknowledgement of what schools and teachers do, but a real desire to move away from seeing schools as offering services, but uh, being partners with them in the educational development of their kids. Absolutely, I, I couldn't agree more. And what a uh, what a wonderful uh, place to wrap things up. It's it's so lovely to hear um, uh, hear your perspective, not only as a researcher but also as a parent. And it's so wonderful, Bronwyn, to hear about your. Uh, the, the role that you've seen that schools play in really low socioeconomic and disadvantaged areas, that idea that schools are these incredible hubs of uh, innovation. There's so much more than curriculum implementation, so much more than uh, to-do lists, and it's, it's actually about um, making a difference in the lives of young people. And I just wanted to thank you both uh, personally, um, not only for, that, uh, for releasing uh, the book, but also for the work that you continue to do too, support us educators it's um it's really uh, something that's really really valuable uh final question uh simon and Bronwyn, where can people i will start with simon where can people find out more about you or follow some of the amazing work that you're doing well bron and i have created this as a very much an open source model yes you, you pay uh, our publisher a little bit of money to get the book we can't control that but uh we have built out on the teachingsprints.com website um links to download the process it's all there um we've been developing uh with some leading people in the field people like dylan william uh, Bronwyn ryrie jones herself uh oliver lovell um uh, tom sherrington a set of small starter videos uh, that helps you just you want to start a sprint now and you've only got four or five minutes uh here a nice package of uh, thoughtful evidence-informed thinking uh, and get moving and all of that's up on the website so number one thing uh, get on the teachingsprints.com website and i would say you know matt even though we've been talking about the big picture here about uh schools and their impact on young people and community uh i just want to really encourage all teachers out there listening to this to, to pick up either copy of the book or jump online and think a little bit about um, taking that small incremental approach of working with a few colleagues in your team and thinking about how you could take this process, whether or not you call it teaching sprints or not, I don't really care. Um, you know, it's not about the name, it's about that process of ensuring that every educator gets a chance and an opportunity to make a little bit of progress every term. So um, feel free to jump in there, uh, adapt it, make it better. And we always say the only rule is once you do make it better that you let us know so we can update and share those ideas uh, with other educators. Fantastic, and obviously your personal website as well, Simon, people can follow what you're doing and, and, and reach out. Yep, uh, just simonbreakspear.com. I think there's one other Simon who's a financial planner in the UK. I hear he's pretty good. Um, but other than that, um, yeah, if you want to, any, anything to do with my thinking and, and free tools and ideas can all be found there on my personal site as well. Amazing. Bronwyn, where can people find out more about your work? Uh, obviously, um, we've talked about the Teaching Sprints website, but what about your personal website? 
Yeah, so my name's a bit hard to spell, but you can have a crack at just Googling my name, Bronwyn Ryrie Jones. Uh, that'll take you direct to my website. The only other thing I wanted to add to the uh, Teaching Sprints website was just um, just really imploring people to get in touch with us. If you hit uh, sort of contact us on the Sprints website, uh, we love nothing more than to hear from teachers. Tell us what evidence um, you're using. Tell us what you're finding really usable. Tell us about the awesome adaptations you've made to sprints that we didn't think of in time before we wrote the book. Um, yeah, just wanted to follow up on what Simon said there. Get back in touch with us. Um, we are always more than happy to chat on the phone or jump on Zoom and uh, hear from people. Um, let you uh, pick our brains and we'll pick yours uh, in order to get uh, the best possible process into as, into as many hands as possible. Fantastic. Well, um, Simon and Bronwyn, thank you so much for your time. Um, it's been wonderful uh, uh, to talk to you. Uh, Simon, as always, it's wonderful to connect. Bronwyn, it's really nice to, to meet you virtually. Um, and, uh, yeah, thank you for your time and uh, all the best with uh, what you're working on next. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Matt. Thanks to you, Matt. Thanks for your work, podcast, teacher, sharer of good ideas with the profession. We appreciate you and all the best with this project. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussion. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. I've one favour to ask. If you could please head to the iTunes page of the podcast and rate and review the episode. This would really help to get the interviews and resources to as many people as possible. Also, I've created a private Facebook group so that we can continue the discussion after each episode. The link is in the show notes. Thank you again for listening and until next time.